This morning, we are jumping into our Q&A series. Um, this is an annual series. We do this every single year, and uh, I'm really excited to be uh, starting this and kicking it off this morning. For those of you who don't know, throughout this series, um, we are giving you guys the opportunity to text in your questions right there at that number on the screen, 719-766-7363. Um, text during service if you got questions, text during the week, but all month long we're going to be fielding the questions that we have as young adults and giving specific attention to them. Um, And then in week five on June 4th, June 5th, um, I can never get that date right, I don't know which one it is, but um, we're going to have a live poll up here where we're going to be fielding questions live. Some special guests are going to be in the house, and we're going to text in our questions, we're going to field them live, and it's going to be a fun month of exploring the questions that we have as young adults um, and giving specific attention to them. So this morning, before we jump into the topic at hand, which I think many of you will be excited about, let's pray, and let's, uh, let's get right down to business. Let's ask that the Holy Spirit moves and speaks and uh, directs this time according to his plan. Father, we love you and we love being yours. We love this work that you're doing upon the earth. We love this Christian vocation. We love being the people of God. We love learning your word and growing in relationship with you. And Holy Spirit, this morning we say that we're hungry. We don't come simply to consume for our own consumption's sake. We don't come just to tickle our ears with a cool idea or um, issue that we want addressed. But God, we come because we know that as we listen to your word and do what it says, actually do something with it, put it into practice, then we become more like you. We're transformed into your image. We become like the one who created us. And so we ask that that would be done this morning that this, this topic that we're going to be talking about, we ask that you would make it concrete in our hearts. We ask that you would allow us to um, shift in paradigms, shift in ideas, even shift in belief systems when necessary. And I pray that we would put all that we hear into practice so that we may become more like you, our Abba Father, the one who is perfect, the one who is loving, the one who is merciful and forgiving and kind and gracious. So would you have your way in this place, Holy Spirit, and we pray that you would satisfy us this morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all the young adults said, amen. All right, Uh, we're going to jump right into the deep end here, if you guys are ready. It's going to be a fun series. Um, We got three questions we're going to be working through this morning. And um, I'm just going to kick off with probably the heaviest one of them all, all right? You ready for this? Question number one. Can we have the blinds up in the mornings? I get real sleepy during young adults because of the lighting. Well, let's give the people what they want. A number of you asked this. So Gabriel, the magic man, let there be light. Let's bring these these blinds up. Let's, uh, Let's get some of that mountain... Mountainscape going on. So, yes. Come on, make some noise for Gabriel. Yes, come on. Um, so I, I want to I feel out at the end of service if you guys like this feel, if you like the shades down. Um, this is actually the first bit of feedback I've received about this. So let, let you know, 
guys, have it your way. You know, it's, what was that, Burger King? Have it your way? Have it your way here at the BK Lounge. All right, just kidding, young adults. Um, so, yes, you can have the blinds up in the morning. Hopefully, hopefully you guys won't be sleepy. And if you guys like it, then I'll ask at the end of service and be prepared to give me a thumbs up, thumbs down, whatever you want to do. But right now, thumbs up or thumbs down? Depending, thumbs up? Okay, great. The people have spoken. Gabriel, thank you. The people have spoken. Um, all right, seriously. Now that we're a little bit more awake, now that we've got a little bit more vibe, um, let's, uh, let's jump into our second question and explore the, the most widespread, in some ways, question that, that uh, we received, at least in this first little bit of uh, texting in. And here's what it is. Uh, Christians often emphasize the importance of free will, but there are many instances in the Bible that speak of how we are God's chosen, or situations like Judas, where he was destined to betray Jesus. Do we have free will? Or are some people destined for hell? Yeah, we're going to the deep end here. So this is a, this is a classic question of the free will predestination argument. And actually, a number of you, uh, by far, asked about this question in particular, which is surprising. But uh, we're going to give attention to it this morning. So uh, we're going to look this morning at free will. We're going to look at predestination, and we're going to we're going to look at another issue that kind of relates to that a little bit later. But um, I think often when it comes to this issue of free will and predestination, it's, uh, it's often one or the other. It's often, um, are we predestined or do we have free will? Um, are, do, is, is life and our destiny in our own hands or does God sovereignly work things out and there's a predestining factor uh, where some are predestined to heaven, others are predestined to hell, and it's kind of uh, either or. And I want to give attention to this issue um, kind of on a big picture level first, because I think that'll be helpful. We're going to talk theological, we're going to talk even philosophical at the, at the top. And then I want to explore in this question, there's two specific, um, well, specifics that, that hone in on it. It's, it's Judas and hell. Um, the, the example of Judas and the example of individual believers who go to hell, are they destined for hell, all of that. So we're going to answer from a big picture standpoint, and then we're going to move on to the specific examples. But um, here's a couple introductory thoughts that I think are really helpful, um, especially when it comes to this. I think that these two thoughts extend to other areas, but I think this is really helpful as we all as young adults uh, wrestle with questions, which we ought to in our 20s. Uh, we shouldn't take um, just the cute little churchy answers that we've heard all our lives and, and say, okay, great, awesome. But we need to, now that we're growing in our critical thinking, we need to actually explore, is this right and is this biblical or is this just a tradition of man that people have said and I've come to believe and really there's some um, instability when it comes to this theology. So um, with a number of these, but especially this one, I think it's important to point out that this issue in particular has been debated for millennia. Um, Christ follower after Christ follower, scholar after scholar, theologian after theologian have debated this issue for century after century after century. I mean, literally um, close to 2,000 years since the infancy of the church. And if the likes of Calvin and Augustine 
couldn't effectively answer this question to where none of us have, uh, you know, ongoing questions about it, then I think to go into this issue and think that we can shore up every single question and every single issue that there's going to be about this, I think is pretty arrogant, actually. Um, So I think we need to approach topics like this, yes, seeking clarity, yes, seeking understanding, but at the same time, embracing uh, what Paul refers to in First Timothy as the mystery of the faith. There's certain times with certain issues where it's a mystery, where it, it supersedes human rationality. And we, in our walk with Christ, shouldn't adopt a theological form of rationalism, assuming that we can wrap our heads completely and fully and justify every single thing with our rationality because there's a certain mystery that comes to some of the issues of the faith. And this issue of predestination and free will is the same thing, okay? So there's a mystery of the faith here. The second thought, and and the thoughts here up on the screen, is this. Durable and sound doctrine is not built upon standalone passages, but upon the entire narrative of Scripture. Think about that for a second. And this, if there is one piece of advice that I would give you and one truth that that I would put in your hands as we continue to explore theology and our knowledge of the Word, it's this. That don't go to a single passage of Scripture or a single verse and say, oh, it says that, and immediately assume and and draw one uh, wide-brush theological conclusion based on one passage. Because if we do that, we can make the Bible say anything we want. We can twist any argument. We can make things sound the way we want it to say. But instead, um, sound and durable doctrine and theology is built upon what Scripture says as a whole, both from a narrative approach and from an expositional approach. What's God doing in the history of humanity? And what do we see based on his workings in humanity um, that I see this principle at work in this verse? How does that fit into the narrative? Also, what are some recurring themes in the recurring theology that we see in Scripture, how this can fit into it? Not, oh yeah, this verse, okay, great, I see it here, that must be, boom, that must mean this, and we project it. No, Uh, fit it into the narrative. What does the narrative say? What does the whole of Scripture say? Um, So, with this one, what does the whole of Scripture say about predestination and about free will? Like this question points out, and Gabriel, let's throw that back up on the screen, the question. Um, It points out that there are passages of Scripture, how we are referred to as God's chosen people or as being predestined or passages like that. Now, there are those. 1 Peter 2.9, you're a chosen priesthood uh, or a royal priesthood, a, a, a chosen nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light, right? Um, there's 1 John 15.16. Jesus says to his disciples, you didn't choose me, but I chose you to bear fruit, right? There's Ephesians 1.4. He chose us before the foundations of the world, this mind-blowing reality that before the earth was even fashioned or created, people were chosen to be the Lord's. And so there's absolutely verses about being chosen and about being predestined even, but like our second thought um, speaks of, we need to fit that into the overarching narrative, we need to fit that into what the Bible says as a whole. And so uh, it needs to be put into context of other passages. Um, so with this, with this uh, issue in mind and with this principle in mind, I want to go to one passage in particular 
that I think can offer some really good insight into this issue of predestination and free will that I think will give context and the proper context to um, these individual verses that we can sometimes point to to overemphasize, I would argue, this issue of free will and predestination, okay? And for those of you who are bored already about this, I'm sorry, but there'll be a question later this morning that, that we'll, we'll get to you. But um, hopefully this is something that's, that's, that's uh, beneficial and impactful and something that clears up, uh, clears up some uh, questions that you guys have in your mind. But uh, one final thought before I jump into this. Um, because... Back to that first issue, because um, these things are being debated and because this issue is very slippery and because people go back and forth on the spectrum, you know, for for generations, it's important to realize that we're not going to hit the bullseye here when it comes to this issue. We're not going to have one silver bullet answer that clarifies everything. But instead, what we're aiming for this morning in this topic is the target area. If you, if you think, of a, think of a target, you're throwing darts, you're shooting rifles, whatever you want to do. Um, there's the bullseye. We're not going to hit that. We're not able to hit that, actually, I would argue. Um, and some of you may hate that reality, and that may drive some of you crazy because you just want to get that one question answered that will clarify everything, but that's not the case. We're shooting for the target area here, the, the, um, the area that I think will give context and give credence, but maybe not shore up every single question. Because again, we have to be okay with the mystery. Anyway, that being said, forgot to say that before. But Romans 8.29. Romans 8.29 says this. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Keep that up for a second. Often we can think of predestination as happening apart from our choice. We can think of God's predetermined will as this entity that exists apart from man's decision and his, his God-given, actually, capacity to choose and exercise his free will. But this passage kind of shatters that idea, doesn't it? Because it says that whom he foreknew first, he also predestined. He foreknew, he knew, it to be, he knew it to be done ahead of time, and then he went on to predestine. And so um, I'm going to give you my interpretation of this passage. There's a number of different interpretations. And so um, this, again, because this is a gray area, there's a lot of different um, ideas and concepts to kind of go about. But this is my interpretation. Basically, it, God foreknew and then he predestined, all right? So I would contend that God's predestination only happens within the context of his foreknowledge. Um, if you want to get really deep and really philosophical, um, predestination demands foreknowledge, but foreknowledge doesn't demand predestination. Just because God foresaw it ahead of time doesn't mean that he, cre- he made it to be so. Um, but if he made it to be so, he had to have seen it ahead of time. Does that make sense? So his predestination demands his foreknowledge. So with that in mind, we can often think, again, we do something and God's disassociated from it, or God does something and we're disassociated from it. But if we look at this passage and put it in its proper context with this predestination issue, then we see that God foreknew ahead of time what we would choose and then predestined. 
those whom he foreknew, the people he knew that were going to be his, he went on to predestine. And so it wasn't this thing that was against man's will, and therefore we have no responsibility, because if God predestined um, outside of our free choice, then how are we to be held responsible for that, right? Some would argue. So God, I would argue, his, uh, his predestination lives, and his predetermined will lives upon the foundation of his foreknowledge. Predestination is the house. Foreknowledge is the foundation. And so um, he foresaw, he predestined accordingly. We are to maintain responsibility still. And let's break this down. Let's, let's uh, give a little illustration on, I think, how we can, how we can clarify and, and bring this a little more less philosophical into the practical. If you decide right here in Young Adults right now, you know what? There's this dog in my neighbor's front yard that always barks at me when I'm walking into my house. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go home, and when I get home, I'm just going to kick it as hard as I can in the face. Just as hard as I can. Well, hey, hey, hypothetical, all right? I'm going to kick that thing as hard as I can in the face. Okay, well, if God's predestination happens apart from our choice, and you go home, and you kick the dog as hard as you can in your face— and you're, not your face, his face. That'd be impressive. Um, if you go home and kick your neighbor's dog as hard as you can, but God predestined it to be so apart from your free will, well, then how are you to be held responsible for that? God made me do it. God made me kick my neighbor's dog in the face, so therefore I don't need to pay court costs, and I don't need to pay lawsuit fees, and I don't need to be held responsible for any of this because God made me do it, right? It was apart from my will. But if we hold to the right notion that God foresaw our actions, and then he predetermined accordingly, then we're to be held responsible, which means that when we go and make up our minds that we're going to kick our neighbor's dog in the face, well, we are still held responsible because God foresaw that. Well, he didn't, he didn't force you to do that. You're not some robot, some pawn to the scheme of this master puppet. But, but we have free will. We have choice. And so when we go and we make up our minds, I'm going to kick my neighbor's dog in the face. We still maintain responsibility. And that doesn't change. That's not the moving piece in this. God foresaw our choice. And he predestined accordingly. And this is the mystery of it. Somehow in his sovereignty and in his wisdom, he makes that line up according to his sovereign will. And, and that's where the question is. That, like, how the heck does that happen? How then is God sovereign and does, does man maintain his free will? And yet there's four, you know, so the, the waters can get muddied there. But if we view God's predestination as living upon the foundation of his foreknowledge of our actions, then when we kick our neighbor's dog in the face, we're still held responsible. And we still have free will in the matter. And uh, we're still under the law of God. So, um, I think, and I, I would contend that, that any questions, any issues with predestination, when we point to specific verses that only talk about predestination, I think we need to presuppose the foreknowledge of God that Romans 8.29 is so explicitly referring to. Does that make sense? Um, now, let's, let's move to a couple of the specific examples. Judas, all right. Um, Judas being predestined to betray Jesus. Now, I think it's interesting to point out that nowhere in Scripture um, does it explicitly say that Judas was predestined to betray Jesus. It never uses that language. Um, Now, we're talking semantics here, but um, it only says that, that it was prophesied ahead of time that Judas would betray Jesus. 
Now we can assume that, okay, if God foresaw um, the actions that Judas would already take, then he predestined. But it doesn't say um, explicitly that Judas was predestined to betray Jesus. But I think we can assume, based on Romans 8.29, that man, if in fact they maintain their free will in this, then Judas had free will. He had a choice. And his choice by no means... Um, somehow was overridden by God um, making his own plan in Judas's life happen. Um, and Judas wasn't held responsible because Judas very much had choice. He chose. God foresaw that choice. And the prophets prophesied accordingly. And somehow the mystery, God predestined that to, to be shaped according to his sovereign will. And then Judas could still exercise free will and could still choose in the way he wanted to choose but it worked out according to God's will, and yet Judas is still held responsible. And so we can't separate predestination from free will. And I know this is a slippery kind of topic sometimes, and it can get hard to grasp at times, but, but uh, free will and predestination must always be married. And I, must, I argue that the foreknowledge of God is the way that it's married. And so because of that, we can extend this principle to people who um, choose to reject Jesus Christ and who eventually go to hell, like Scripture is, is pretty explicitly clear about. I think we can extend it to um, if man does in fact have free will, and if God foresees ahead of time what he'll choose and predestines accordingly, then man by no means um, is thrown in hell or thrown in heaven unjustly because they still maintain their free will on the matter. Yes, God predestines, yes, but, but God doesn't, on his own accord, outside of man's free will, send people to hell. That's universalism, um, is that, that some people, well, I guess universalism is all people are going to be in heaven eventually, right? Um, God can't, God's so loving, he, he can't, he can't um, throw people in hell, but, but God, in fact, allows man to have free will, and we'll get to this in a second, but uh, through that, he foresees, uh, he predestines, man maintains responsibility. And so people aren't, in, in outside of their will, destined to hell. I mean, that would change the very uh, theology of Christian mission. What's the Great Commission then for? If people are destined to hell and we're just kind of doing this own thing and God has his own plan that's existing apart from us, then why would Jesus commission us to go and make disciples of all nations? Why would, he, why would he say, go into all the world, proclaim the gospel, preach the good news? You know, like it, it doesn't make sense if free will and predestination aren't married and don't coincide through this element of the foreknowledge of God. One more passage and then we'll jump to the next question. Um, I think this, this uh, principle is um, the most clearly seen in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I think God's foreknowledge and his predetermined will is beautifully and profoundly and climactically seen um, in his allowance of Jesus being crucified that is explained so well in Acts 2, uh, verses 22 to 24. This is Peter on the day of Pentecost. He stands up, he gives this sermon, and he says this, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, now here's, here's the part, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified 
and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible to be held by it. But this Jesus, verse 23, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, this predetermined will, this foreseen will of God, you crucified. In other words, you still have responsibility on this thing. The the blood is on your hands. And many scholars, some of you asked about this in text, so I'll clarify it now. Uh, Many scholars believe that AD 70, when when the temple was ransacked and when Jerusalem was essentially raised and burned to the ground by the Romans, many scholars believe that that was actually an act of judgment on the Jews because of the crucifixion of Jesus, because the blood was still on their hands. Now, you know, if I agree with that, I'm not going to say, but um, that, that's, the, that's the assertion. But this delivered up according to the definite and predetermined plan of God, you crucified. You maintain responsibility. God foresaw what we would choose. He predetermined based on that foreknowledge. Um, and, you know, there, I, there's some questions with that, and there's some, um, some things to be said for, for viewing things in another light. But I, I wanted to give you my interpretation of predestination and free will and where those meet. And I hope that didn't muddy the waters more than it needed to. Maybe for some of you it did. Maybe some of you are mad at me because I would have the audacity to assume that those two can be married. But I think that viewing those two uh, within these passages of scriptures um, kind of gives us a little more clarity. Does this make sense? Or are you guys just ready to move on to the next one? You guys are ready. All right, let's go. Number three, question number three. Uh, this is a little more practical, all right? So we're, we're moving from the philosophical, but do our prayers change the will of God? Like prayers for cancer to go away or prayers for people to change. Do our prayers influence God's decisions? And I threw this one in this morning because this also kind of goes along with the foreknowledge, um, kind of predetermined will of God in some ways. But I think often uh, we can view prayer either as from, from two extremes, let's say, the, the paradigm. On one side, it's every single thing I pray for, as long as I tack on in the name of Jesus, I got it. Um, that's not biblical, first of all. All right, but there, there's theological streams out there that emphasize that, that all you have to do is say the name of Jesus, have enough faith, and no matter what you're asking for, you got it. No, 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 no. Don't, don't tread those waters, all right? Now the other side. Um, prayer is just some practice that we just engage in because it's a Christian discipline, and it really doesn't do anything. I mean, God's will is pre-planned ahead of time, and so us, we, we, it's just essentially us being a good Christian is just praying and saying these rote prayers, all right? Again, not biblical. No, 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 no. Stay clear from that. Um, and so with this, we got to shoot the middle a little bit. And I think it's important to point out that first, um, this question emphasizes and asks, um, do, do, do our prayers change the will of God? Well, well, in Scripture, we're never taught that prayers change the will of God. We're never taught that prayer is persuasion, as we often think of prayer as. We, we think of prayer going to this God who, oh, maybe if I pray the right prayers, and if I'm, if I'm assertive enough, and if I command the name of Jesus enough, and I do all these things, then I'll kind of twist this God's arm, and then he'll concede, and he'll be persuaded, and give me what I'm asking for. But prayer isn't modeled like that in Scripture. Prayer is not persuasion. Um, and so changing the will of God through prayer, no, that, that's not what prayer is. Um, the Bible never promises that because James 1.17 says that with God, there is no changing. 
Um, There is no shadow of turning. God, being omnipotent and being self-sufficient and being the God that he is, his will doesn't change as if, as if his plan for the earth or, or his will for salvation and all this changes by that which is finite. Can the infinite be changed by the finite? No. So God is consistent. God is steady. God never changes. Um, but prayer, we see, uh, is taught so beautifully by Jesus in Matthew 6, 9 through 13. And I think this will give some context. Jesus, when he, when he teaches us to pray, doesn't say prayer is this rote expression that you just do, and it's just part of the Christian faith that does nothing. And he doesn't say that um, no matter what you pray, no strings attached, say it in my name and you got it. Because again, in the narrative of Scripture, we, that doesn't line up. There's other passages that very much... Um, kind of go against that. But um, instead, Jesus taught us to pray like this, Matthew 6, 9 through 13. Pray then like this. Pay attention to the verbiage he uses here. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Many of us know this verse. But the thing I want to point out about this verse is the very prayer that Jesus taught us to pray are things that are already in God's will. Look at this for a second. Um, These things, God's work upon the earth, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God working upon the earth, that's in his will. Give us today our daily bread, provision, that's in God's will. And, and forgive us our debts as we've forgiven our debtors, that's in God's will. Of course it is. We see that, um, you know, with the pinnacle of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the forgiveness and remission of sins, it's in his will. Finally, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, deliverance. So these things, work, his work upon the earth, provision, forgiveness, deliverance, these are things that are already in the will of God. And, and prayer isn't persuasion, Prayer isn't saying, oh God, do this because I know that you, you're kind of on the fence and you may not want to do it, but please, please, please do it. No, Jesus is saying the things you pray should already be the things in God's will. And so it's coming with the Father and asking, Father, the things that you already desire to do, the things that are already in your heart for humanity, the things that you already wish to accomplish upon the earth, would you do those? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so it's coming, prayer is coming alongside what God is already doing. And then the natural question then is, if prayer is praying according to that which is already in God's will, then why is it even necessary? Why don't we view prayer as this rote thing that we kind of just do because we're told to do? Um, And to this, I want to take you to a couple of scriptures real quick. 1 John 5.14, first. This will be up on the screen. And this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us, right? There's, no, there's strings attached here. It has to be according to his will. Don't go asking the Lord for a Ferrari, um, you know, on your friend's dime, who's making 20000 a year. That's not going to happen, all right? That's not in God's will. Um, and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him, right? Praying according to God's will. James 5, 16 through 18 is the next one. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. Stop right there. Boom. The prayer of a righteous man 
uh, has great power. It's not a rote expression. It's not something we just do, but there's actually some substance and some power to our prayer. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on earth. Then he prayed again, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth bore its fruits. So this prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective, as some translations say. And it uses a specific example of Elijah here, um, because what Elijah prayed was according to the will of God. God was working in Israel at that time, and r- real quick, just a quick historical summary that I think will be helpful. Um, Israel was, was ruled by King Ahab and Queen Jezebel, these wicked rulers that, who had drawn the hearts of Israel away from Yahweh, the one true God, and they begun to worship Baal, this false god, this god who, who uh, the prophets of Baal promised that he would send rain. So he was essentially the god of rain who would water the lands of Israel. Um, so Elijah as God's prophet and God's spokesman, um, essentially shuts the mouth of Baal and proves that Baal is worthless by sending a drought on Israel to prove that Baal, in fact, was not Lord of the storm and Lord of the rain, but it was Yahweh himself. And so even this drought and this rain, this massive cosmic force that God sends on the earth, it was all in God's will. So Elijah, in praying for that, he was praying according to God's will. And prayer, actually, we see is this beautiful facilitator of our relationship with God. Not just in the way that we can communicate with him through prayer, but it also allows us to partner with what God's doing upon the earth. And so why do it? Why, why pray something that's already in God's will? Well, because God has graced us with this amazing gift to be able to come alongside the infinite creator and partner with him, with his work upon the earth? Are you serious? Think about that. The finite, the broken. Us, us flawed humans get to partner with the eternal and faithful creator with his work upon the earth? That is amazing. And so what we see uh, in scripture about prayer is this. That prayer isn't practice, isn't a practice of persuasion, but of partnership with the Father and his work upon the earth. Prayer is necessary. Prayer does big things. Prayer is powerful. But it's not persuasion. It's participation. It's partnership with what God's doing. And in doing so, God graces us and loves us so much to actually allow us messed up and broken and sinful and just people to be able to work his work upon the earth. And isn't the church the living, breathing testimony of this reality? That if the church is in fact here on earth, still, that bears witness to the fact that God is using us for his purposes. We're not here just to fill the space and do things until God comes, Jesus comes back, but we're here participating, partnership with God's work upon the earth. And prayer is a beautiful expression of how we do that. I hope that makes sense. But uh, as we conclude... What do we do with all this? Um, I know we've jumped around a lot. We've covered a lot of ground. But what do we do with all this? I think the big idea here is we look at these issues of sovereignty and free will, though we didn't address those as deep as they probably need to be addressed. Um, and we looked at prayer and all this stuff. We can see that we very much have a part to play in God's plan. That we are not these, these entities on the earth that are disassociated from the plan of the Father, but God in his love has so generously extended the opportunity and the, um, 
the, the option to partner with him in his work upon the earth. And so we have a part to play in this beautiful thing that God's doing. And it's not just, dis- I mean, God doesn't just do things on the earth and uh, doesn't bring us in at all, though he absolutely could. He's gracious and humble and loving enough to actually bring us fallen humans in to what he's doing. And so whether it's praying for someone, one of our friends, to come to know Jesus in a relational way, whether it's praying for the sick, um, whether it's being a witness, a testimony, salt and light in our spheres of influences, whatever it is we do, every, you know, prayer and partnership with the Father is living in his plan for the earth, and it's being used by him through relationship um, for all that he's doing uh, in his redemptive plan through all the nations of the earth. And so we have a part to play in the Father's redemptive work upon the earth that was made possible through Jesus Christ and is accomplished by the power of the Holy Spirit. We're caught up in this Trinitarian work upon all that God's doing. Um, is that helpful at all? Yeah? Okay. Um, I want to give you guys some time to discuss. Um, we got some discussions up on the screen, and I took a lot of time. I mean, it's 1027 right now, but I want to give you guys a chance to discuss, to talk through these, um, and uh, we'll pick this up in a little bit. But hopefully that was helpful. I know the predestination thing's a little flighty, the will of God, all that stuff. It's kind of hard, but I hope at least a little bit I gave you a sliver of clarity, a sliver of challenge, all that. But um, anyway, I'll uh, I'll give you guys a chance to talk through some discussions, ask these questions at your tables, and we'll pick this up in a little bit and do our benediction and wrap up, all right? Much love as you discuss. All right. Were those discussions helpful? Okay, seriously, I I need you to give me a little bit. Was this morning helpful at all? Yes. Okay, great. Um, Let me conclude, because, you know, I I try and get a feel, but with a topic like this, it's, as many of you, I'm sure, found as you were discussing, you you start with this, and then you're realizing, wow, this thing goes deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. And there's like, there's an iceberg at the bottom and we've only gone an inch, you know? So this is a complicated topic. Again, want to emphasize, this is a topic that's been debated for millennia. And it's okay to let the mystery be the mystery. And uh, I'm saying that, and a, a, a little bit of me dies inside when I say that because I'm a pragmatist, I'm a rational, I, I like things. No, 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 like I need to figure this out. But the mystery of the faith, this is not a rationalist's game uh, in some ways maybe, but you know, you, you got to be okay with the questions. Um, also, really, regardless of where we stand on this, some of you may disagree with me, others may say, absolutely, yes, I'm with you. Um, regardless of where we stand, even Calvinism, Arminianism, all that, does this really affect practical life with the Lord? I would argue no. Should we allow this issue to change the way that we view world mission, change that we view the Great Commission, change the way that we view the Father? No, and, and nor do I think it should be. Um, so let this be an issue that, yes, you come back to and, yes, talk about, but really, um, I don't think it should be a forefront issue. I don't think it should be one that keeps you up at night or questions um, the nature of God or anything like that. Okay, let, let live and let live, um, but still explore and still dive into this um, as you please. So hope this was helpful. Let's stand. Let's do our benediction, and then we'll dismiss. All right, we're going to do the early church prayer again of our uh, thank, thankfulness for the word and for the truth and for the scriptures. So let's pray this together. 
Almighty God, we thank you for the gift of your holy word. May it be a lantern to our feet, a light upon our paths, and a strength to our lives. Take us and use us to love and serve all people in the power of the Holy Spirit and in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And everybody said, Amen.